myself there. Um, look, with this is an incredibly interesting subject and a very worthwhile one. Like I've mentioned before, we have Professor Stuart Kinner joining us in the studio, Curtin School of Population and Committee Member of National Prison Health Information Committee. Thank you for joining us, Stuart. Very much appreciated. Pleased to be here. Can you just explain, first of all, the group that you're with, the committee and member of the National Prison Health Information Committee, what is that about and what sort of strength do you have in this discussion? The National Prison Health Information Committee has been around for more than 20 years now. Uh, it's a, an advisory committee uh, that supports the AIHW, the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, to do its job. In this case, the job is to develop routine reports on the health of people in prisons and on the health services in those prisons. So it's a committee that's made up of representatives from every state and territory, from the health prison health service providers, plus a couple of researchers, and I'm one of those researchers on that committee. Well, it's good to know that you do that. I mean, it's been in the press a lot, has it not, the situation with our prisons, particularly, I suppose, focusing on juvenile detention mm -hmm. at the moment. But just going back to what the committees do, how do you keep in touch with what is happening in there? So the, what the, the NVIC, or the National Prison Health Information Committee, does is just oversee uh, the collation of information on the health of people in prisons nationally, and every three years um, the AHW publishes a report, and that's how we can find out about the health needs of people in prisons and what prison health services are doing to meet those needs. Um, that's particularly important for Indigenous people who are so extraordinarily overrepresented in prisons in Australia by a factor of 13, um, and in youth attention by a factor of 22. That's huge. So, so mm. understanding the health needs of people in custody is important to closing the gap. And without those data, we're really missing an important part of the picture. It gets missed occasionally because, of, you know, recently we did have that terrible situation. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's not common, but when it does happen, we certainly hear a lot about it. And our hearts go out to the families of these young men and I suppose young women to a point. But... What, what sort of comes up uh, in these reports that's more dominant as far as health issues go? Mental health, physical health or both? It, it, it depends. So uh, to, to give you the short answer, in youth detention, certainly mental health issues are very, very prominent. Neurodevelopmental disabilities, FASD, intellectual disability, also very, very common. And importantly, those issues co-occur. So most young people in detention have multiple complex health and health related needs so it's a very very high needs group and of course that's an important part of yeah. the reason why they're in detention i was about to ask you that in the first place yeah, yeah that's exactly right and that's a community problem isn't it um which is either wide wider spread than we imagined or it's getting reported more often but it just seems to be the case i mean we'd, we've mentioned this before with the queensland juvenile crime spree at the moment and where are they going to go these young people where have they come from why are they doing that Sure. Look, there's a bit of a gap sometimes between the evidence and what we hear in the media about these issues. There, is, there isn't an epidemic of youth crime. There are certainly some really concerning issues happening about young people engaging in antisocial and sometimes dangerous behaviours. But it really isn't the epidemic that we might sometimes think when we look at the it's mainstream media. the reporting, media. I think, sometimes. Um, the concern, the interest in the reporting has certainly increased. And the important thing to think about here is that youth justice and youth detention in particular is really the end, it's the end of the road for damaged and vulnerable young people 
who've been failed by every system that precedes it. We often talk about the school-to-prison pipeline where young children in very difficult circumstances disengage from school, they go through child protection, they end up in contact with the police, they might be homeless, they end up in the youth justice system, they end up in detention, they end up in prison. And it's a tragically predictable trajectory. And so the solutions are not about tough on crime, they're about addressing the needs of vulnerable people. I was about to ask that of you. Um, If we know that the ultimate result is that they probably do end up in care and their life becomes a cycle why aren't we picking up this disruption in their lives earlier and why aren't we as a society moving in earlier we know it we know it why aren't we doing it that is the million dollar question look we we know it and we underinvest. Yeah. um it's it is complex and it is political and so the further upstream we go the better but the further upstream, the less concentrated our investment. Because if we were to have a look at inequities, you know, there's many, many children who enter preschool um, with disadvantage, with, with challenges before them, ideally we'd be intervening at that stage, and not just for the children, but for their families yeah, and for right. their communities. Why is it political? Why should that be an issue? When you see children at a very young age, and you can pick it up, teachers can see it happening. Yeah, yeah. Look, why is it political? There are two answers to that question. The proximate answer is that people are scared of what they see as uh, antisocial criminal behaviour that potentially is a risk to them or people they love, and that's totally understandable. Um, the broader picture answer, though, is that we have a machine fueled reciprocally by media and politics that drives this apprehension that there's a major crime problem. Like, all societies have crime. Incarceration rates vary enormously around the world, and it's not because the amount of crime varies, it's because our policies for responding to behaviours that can lead people into custody are so radically different. Unfortunately, Australia is going in the wrong direction at the moment. Unfortunately, we're moving in the direction of the mass incarceration that the US in recent years has so famously recognised has Mm. been an abject failure. So when a teacher recognises and sees in her class that she's got children that perhaps are behaving erratically and there's signs, okay, there's obvious signs, where should she go from there? And, I mean, is is it the intrusion that people hold back? They don't want to get involved. Uh, Government departments, why can't they? Uh, Can the parents uh, sue the government? I mean, what's stopping that? I mean, you don't want to take children away from families. I understand there is all of that. But like you said earlier, it's it's a guidance uh, to the family as well as the children. At that time, if if that could happen... Would be. It sounds a bit fairy tale, I know, but if that could happen, would be great, wouldn't it? It would be fantastic. Look, I mean, these are big questions that you're asking, and the, the problem, of course, is that the solutions are expensive. The downstream benefits of those solutions yeah, but it's expensive are, at the other end. are much. Uh, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's a cost-saving cost. net. However, those savings are yielded when that generation of young people become. Um, well-adjusted adults that are contributing members of society who've had their mental health, their their social issues addressed. That timeline, unfortunately, doesn't align well with our political realities well, of the three-year Well, it's got to be rethought. Cycle. It really has to be rethought. And I, and I can understand that there's a hesitation about intruding into family life, but when you see children badly looked after or not looked after properly and, and it ends up the way that you've mentioned, it's not just a financial situation that we've got to be looking at. It is human lives, you know, and, and how they live. I mean, it's just awful to see this. Look... 
what we're seeing in prison, prisons are um, one symptom of failures, and this includes youth prisons or youth detention centres, are an instance of or an example of the failures of all of our societal systems to address disadvantage, inequity, and importantly, getting to your point, intergenerational disadvantage. Let me give you a, a statistic as an example of this, that we know that in Australia at least in New South Wales and Queensland, around one in five Indigenous children experiences the incarceration of at least one parent before the age of 18. Mm. And Now, that's, that's one of the tragic reasons why we have this appalling over-representation of Indigenous people in the criminal justice system, because disadvantage begets disadvantage, yeah. stigma begets stigma, racism begets r- racism. Does, right. And so what we need to do is invest in mitigating that. Unfortunately, the investments that we have at the moment in the Australian prison system, about $6 billion a year in net recurring costs at the moment, mm-hmm. the evidence is clear that those investments are compounding the problem. Of course so they we're are. spending, yeah. for anyone listening, $6 billion of your tax dollars every year making things worse. And if that could be used, even part of, in very early stages, keeping in mind the family's set up, you know, you, you can't intrude and say you, you're not treating your family properly and, you know, you, you, all sorts of things arise from that. So it's a, there's got to be good minds out there that can come up with something, I hope. Look, there's good minds and there's good evidence. It's really about the uptake of that evidence. Just one instance of what you're talking about is the thing called justice reinvestment, which is just the notion that we look at communities where there's a concentration of disadvantage also the communities which disproportionately incarcerate we know that a very disproportionate number of people who end up in prison in western australia as elsewhere come from a small number of highly marginalized communities if we were to take the money that we spend on incarcerating people in those communities and instead invest in housing education mental health services drug and alcohol treatment services the evidence suggests that we would see makes much better sense. outcomes. It so makes sense. Well, I guess the committees that you work with uh, could help, you know, get them thinking a bit more that way, or we the public, if there's anything we could do. Look, you know, wish what, we could. What, the, what we the public can do, including me, is to call out our decision makers whenever we hear tough on crime rhetoric. When you do hear a decision maker, a politician, talk about being tough on crime, I would encourage you to look at the evidence and realise that what they're actually saying is... I want to make things worse because I Mm. think it will resonate with you. It's a knee-jerk reaction from people that have been, uh, you know, the the victim of crime, I suppose, by young people. They've got anger in them and they don't know any other way to sort of say it, I suppose, in an educated way. Mm. But that is true and you have to think, back in the very early step we'll get, we'll get on to yeah. that as well and look just just very quickly on yeah. that i mean victims of crime obviously very important i think again what's really important is that there's been some terrific research on people who've been victims of crime and by and large what people want to see is responses that work by and large people don't just want to see uh, unmitigated punishment that mm. results in that person living a life of crime and marginalization it's a cycle Indeed. It, it just continues. If they get imprisoned, uh, then, of course, they can come out even more so angry at life and uh, continue to do so. Um, what about short prison stays impacting health? I mean, obviously, you get, you get put into a cell. It's a pretty heavy scene for a young person, isn't it? Mm, indeed. Mm. So we know that um, short prison sentences are 
something we need to do less of. Uh, typically, short prison sentences are associated with minor crimes. We're not talking about um, violent crimes against people. We're talking about vagrancy, shoplifting, um, failure to pay fines, things of that sort. What we know is that those short prison sentences are not a deterrent, that they don't reduce reoffending. In fact, people who churn in and out of prisons are more likely to reoffend. We also know that people who move in and out of prison on short stays have terrible outcomes in the community that cost you and I and every other taxpayer money mm. because it interrupts housing. Yeah. It interrupts employment. It, it interrupts family relationships. It's associated in a dose-response way with an mm -hmm. increase in the risk of preventable death from suicide, drug overdose, injury and other causes. Crime to that point, do you think that maybe their thought is, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a loser here, the only way I'm going to survive is to steal? Look, I don't think people think I'm a loser, I'm going to steal. I think people think I can't afford to put They're food on my loser. plate. They're not a loser. Yeah, but that's yeah. what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I need it to survive. They're not a loser. They don't think that. They just are thinking, I have to get this for my family or I need this and I deserve this. Yeah, I think what you're touching yeah. on here is the other part of this picture, which is about... Um, this misapprehension that people are in prison because they've committed crimes and that's bad and they need to do something. What we also see, not uniquely in Australia, but certainly in Australia, is this phenomenon of the criminalisation of disadvantage. Yeah, and a, a really true. obvious example about that in, in Victoria, one progressive move recently uh, was to... It's no longer a crime to be intoxicated in public okay. because... Uh, one of the many, many tragic deaths in custody that's happened there was directly associated with someone being incarcerated for being intoxicated in public. Clearly, public intoxication indicates a health concern. Mm. Uh, it is not a crime, no, but it's you. been criminalised. Yeah, good. Well, that's a start. Mm. What about, you did mention earlier, the over-representation of Indigenous people, and that's a huge area that you touched on that could be looked at. And it's being discussed pretty much on a daily basis, isn't it? You know, we had the yes-no vote recently. Um, whether that would have made a difference, who knows? But um, there is a lot of money going into that area. It's obviously not enough. It's not even, even a matter areas. of how much money is going in, but where it's going and who's deciding where it goes. Uh, you I know, think it's people again, discuss I'm that. Mm. Certainly not saying anything new, but uh, to a reasonable extent, the solutions to these issues come from communities, including Indigenous communities. Uh, and so I talked before about justice reinvestment and um, empowering Indigenous people and communities. Uh, or not disempowering Indigenous people and communities from making their own decisions about how to respond to social and health and welfare issues in their communities is almost certainly going to lead to much better outcomes. But they have to know how to do it, though. You know, I'm not saying that they're illiterate or anything, but there is a situation where they have to know, and we're asking them to live a certain way. Uh, well, you know, that's the way of a life today, isn't it? Live well, be healthy, mm. don't drink too much, don't, you know, no domestic violence, all those areas. That's sure. in other communities as well, just Look, quietly. Look, we, we, uh, we, so as I said before, we spend about $6 billion a year on prisons. Um, if we spent a fraction of of that on supporting Indigenous people and their communities to address the issues that lead to incarceration, I think we'd be in a much better place. So although there is talk of extraordinary sums of money being spent, unfortunately all too often those sums are not being spent by, for 
or with the guidance of the Indigenous people who are the purported recipients of those funds. I'm finding it quite difficult for them not to even work that out when you look at the cost you've mentioned for incarceration. If, if money was spent in other areas to help educate in the earlier stages, I mean, I might now be naive here, but it seems obvious if you guys know it, why does, don't the power makers know it? Look, I think our politicians do know that. It's difficult for multiple reasons. The first is that a lot can change in a generation, and the second is that one thing that will almost certainly change is the, the person in power now will not be the person in power oh, in a yes, generation. I know what you're saying. Yeah. yeah, That is the problem. So that's the federal government's role is what you're suggesting, that is looked at. You know, to, opposing governments should come together on this, these issues. Indeed. Look, I think, you know, yeah. one of the issues that we've, we've drawn attention to is that criminal justice systems in Australia, being a federation, are all run by state and territory governments. But... This is clearly a national issue. It's a global it issue, is. but it's clearly a national issue, yeah. and it's one in which the federal government has had very little involvement um, until recently. It is pleasing to see some steps in the direction of reform. One instance that could be an, a low-cost, high-yield change that's directly in the power of the federal government relates to the fact that people in prisons and youth detention in Australia are excluded, uniquely excluded, from our supposedly universal health insurance scheme, Medicare. People in custody cannot access Medicare subsidies or PBS subsidised medications. Now, that has a raft of deleterious outcomes. One really pointed one is that Aboriginal community-controlled health organisations, which are key to achieving better outcomes for people who are exposed to incarceration, cannot do inreach. Even though those organisations are funded to provide care for, for people released from prison, they can't go into prison and engage with people there because there's no Medicare subsidy, which is the core source of funding for those services. Of course. Mark Butler, our Federal Minister for Health and Aged Care, has the executive authority to change that literally with the stroke of a pen under section 19.2 of the health makes so much Act. sense doesn't it that would be a step in the right why direction. did they stop it in the first place look people in prison have always been de facto excluded from medicare and so it's unfortunately just a, a legacy of an mm. act that was established half a century ago uh, and at that time prison health uh, conditions were not quite so central we have unfortunately advanced a little bit since then unfortunately prison health standards and investment in healthcare in prison has not kept up with what we're seeing in the community so there's a clear inequity and that inequity is contributing to the poor reoffending and health and welfare outcomes. well Stuart you've got a big road ahead of you haven't you indeed I only wish that uh, everyone could get together and the governments you know opposing governments could w work together on something like this because it's it's so obvious to me that uh, well it always sounds easier, doesn't it, than when it's done. Just finally, Casarina, is there a, a, the juvenile detention has been there for some time and now they're thinking of moving juveniles away from Casarina? Look, I, you, I probably don't know any more than you do from them, what I've seen in the media. So WA, despite being an extraordinarily large state, has only one youth detention centre at this stage at Banksia Hill, which is a problem. It concentrates a lot of young, very, very challenging people from all over this enormous state. Of late, a small subset of those children who've been branded as difficult have been moved to a maximum security adult uh, prison, yeah. Casarina, and we did tragically see a young person lose their life there mm. not that long ago. Now, yes, those children are very challenging. We're spending over a million dollars per child per year wow. to hold them in custody. What we should be doing is spending the money in ways that achieve better outcomes. Mm. The command and control mm. approach 
does not work. We learned this after the Royal Commission from the Dondale um, events in the Northern Territory in 2017. We don't seem to have learned it everywhere else in the country. Migrate takes so long, I don't know, I have any idea. Yeah, very. It's a big subject and it's uh, one that we all should be looking at very closely. Thank you, Stuart, so very much. My pleasure. Professor Stuart Kenner joining us. Radio.